Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Amy Spreeman. And I'm Michelle Leslie. And welcome to another episode of The Pew. Not the view, the pew. All of the joy, none of the Behar. It's our view from the church pew on some very important issues in evangelicalism. That's right. And we've got some really thought-provoking stories coming your way tonight. So let's just start right into it. Let's go with this one. Uh, Now, there's recently been quite the kerfuffle on social media, Twitter and Instagram in particular, over whether or not women can teach the Bible or theology, not to men, but to other women. That's right, Amy. There are some really good, solid, and some not so solid brothers and sisters out there who believe that there are only certain parts of the Bible and certain aspects of theology that women can teach to other women. Uh, These things are found in Titus 2 verses 4 through 5, and they're typically labeled biblical womanhood. Let me read that passage to you, starting with verse 3. This is Titus 2, 3 through 5. It says, older women are likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So the folks that we're talking about would basically say that the only things older women can teach younger women are loving and submitting to your husband, being a godly mother, and homemaking. And if women want to learn anything else about doctrine or the Bible, they have to learn it from their husbands or their pastors and elders, all of whom, of course, are male. So let's listen to this series of clips from Dale Partridge's two-part series on this topic on his podcast, Real Christianity. When a woman comes in and says, I'm going to teach your daughter, your wife, your congregant theology, I am essentially, this woman is saying that she is usurping the authority, the spiritual shepherding and authority of the father, husband, or pastor. Let me give you an example. If my daughter went to a women's Bible study taught by another woman, Uh, As her spiritual shepherd, I would be very concerned about what she was learning. That is what a good shepherd concerns himself with. As a pastor, I do this as well. I'm concerned when my flock leaves each week, what they are going to learn and from who. And if she was attending this Bible study taught by, say, another male elder, at the church, uh, I would be less concerned. And when this would happen, I can trust that she was learning in accordance to sound doctrine and not being instructed in any way that contradicts, counteracts, or confuses her spiritual development, which I am responsible for. Uh, Should women teach other women theology? My my answer is no, they should not. And yes, that means that I believe a woman's Bible study led by a woman is unbiblical. Now, there's going to be some exceptions that I'll talk about, but, you know, can my wife read a book about, 
for example, my wife is reading a testimony of an Islamic woman converting to Christianity. And certainly there's some theological implications in that book. But I also have looked at that book and that author, and I am always approving the things that she wants to read. And I'm concerned over things that she might want to read. And we talk about those things. We have a very clear line of communication. Now she's, you know, a woman and can make wise decisions on her own, but she yields to me if she has questions or concerns or asks me questions about something that she might've learned or heard in a particular book. And I'm there to offer the answer for that. So there's lots of complexities and intricacies that we're not going to get to talk about in this episode about how this actually works practically. But as it pertains to a woman going to another woman's Bible study led by a woman without the presence of a biblically qualified elder there, I am against that. I believe that all women's Bible studies should be led by a biblically qualified a biblically qualified elder from their local church. This is basic, basic reality. Now, I don't believe that all women's ministries should be led by a man. So I want to clarify that. No, there's a category for women teaching women. That's a real category in the church. Uh, for that, we'll turn to Titus 2, 3 through 5. This is the curriculum for women. This is he wants women to understand that. And Paul, again, just listed the syllabus of what's in that curriculum, and he did not include theology. He did not include talking about those deeper academic realities that are reserved for the elders and the pastors and teachers within the church. But again, it's not that women can't learn theology. They can, and they should learn theology. They simply should not learn it from other women, but from their appropriate spiritual head or from the oversight of a spiritual head. Now, you might be asking the question, Dale, so are you saying that no women's Bible study is better than a woman-led Bible study? And I say, yes. I think that it would be better to have no women's Bible studies than to have women's Bible studies with women teaching them. And I'm going to tell you why. When women seek alternative paths to theological instructions or theological instruction, they alleviate the necessity of their male spiritual head to perform the duties by playing into their passivity. Well, those are some really interesting ideas, don't you think, Amy? Yeah. Well, b- very before, interesting. Yeah. Uh, now, before we start our discussion, I just want to alert y'all to the fact that near the end of part two, Dale makes very clear that he considers this to be a secondary issue that we do not have to be all in uniformity on. He says this is the way that his church and his family do things, and that we should not divide over this issue, just like we shouldn't divide over differing eschatology and things of that nature. And I just really quickly want to uh, urge you ladies to please listen to both parts of his uh, podcast episodes on this subject because we had to, I realized that it seems like that was kind of a long uh, series of clips, but you really, really have to listen to the whole thing to get the entire context of what he's saying. So we've got those those links in the show notes for you. And I would urge you to listen to both parts one and part two 
of Dale's podcast episodes. So Amy, what's your reaction to some of those things that Dale said? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that um, that you have to listen to the longer context and that he did say that this was uh, a secondary thing and that's how he uh, does this in his church. But it sure sounded like from the lengthy clips that we listened to that um, this is how it should be done for everyone. Um, and so, I mean, that that's kind of the flavor that I got from what he said. It kind of started off with how uh, a female Bible teacher, a women's Bible teacher, is usurping uh, a female student's spiritual authority, uh, in other words, usurping uh, her husband uh, or as a teacher or a pastor. And I don't think that's the case. I, I especially, you know, the solid uh, women's Bible study uh, leaders and facilitators that I've known have always said, we need to, um, you know, learn from our husbands, for instance, ask him, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so I don't think that there's any usurping going on. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that, yes, a, a pastor should be concerned with what his flock is learning about outside of uh, his church building, for sure inside his church building. Uh, you know, he, he should only have people on staff or uh, volunteers who are, are biblically uh, wise and mature. But uh, outside, sure, he, he probably should know what they're all learning about. Uh, it's impossible, of course. Um, I, I guess that's just a wish on my part. I, I wish that pastors would, um, you know, understand what, what their uh, congregants are learning about outside. Uh, but Again, that that's uh, uh, maybe a little control thing that maybe he doesn't have control over what we learn outside of of the church building. But it's nice. It, it's nice to have. Then he said that uh, a women's Bible study uh, should always have a male elder present. That's a little strange. I've never. I've. I mean, that, that's nice that he does that. He must not trust the woman who uh, is teaching. I guess so. I, I guess that's just my thought. Is that you know? Would you really have to have a male? In the room, listening and making sure um, you should you should have some level of trust uh, about what's going on in your own uh, Bible study in your church. Um, I don't know what what are your thoughts. I, I think a pastor should understand and know what's happening and what's being taught in the church. But um, as far as women learning from women, I I think I, I disagree there. I you know for reasons that we've stated before on other programs, I I do think that that women should teach what is good and and. Women teach what is good by teaching that God is good. Well, Michelle, what are your thoughts? Well, um, I I agree with like about after listening to both parts completely and very carefully, um, I agree with about 95% of the things that he has to say. And um, especially, you know, since I, like I said before, since he said, this is, you know, this is the way that they do this in their church and everything. And I've also had the opportunity to, to chat with Dale a little bit about this since he released these two, um, released these two episodes. And he really is such a good brother in Christ. And, um, you know, I think that there on the parts that we disagree on, we are both okay with disagreeing with each other on those things. Um, I, I would tend to agree with you. Um, I, well, let's, let's talk about the the part where you're teaching a, a women's Bible study in a church. Let's talk about that first. A verse that has continued to come back to my mind as I've continued to think about this issue is in Proverbs 31. I can't remember which verse it is, and I don't have it in front of me right now. But one of the verses in the Proverbs 31 chapter, you know, it's the the excellent wife who can find and all that. And it talks about a, a godly wife. One of the verses is 
the heart of her husband trusts in her. And I've been thinking a lot about that. You know, um, I've, I've listened to a few other uh, pastors uh, online who have, have said things that have led me to believe that they really micromanage their wives' lives and their, you know, the lives of their congregations and things like that. And that concerns me because if you've got a godly wife, you should trust her. You shouldn't have, have to monitor her every little tiny move. I mean, I even heard one pastor say something like he, well, I won't get into that, but anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's too, it's too far afield. We'll stay on the topic here. Um, but anyway, I, I kind of think that should be perhaps a component of the relationship between a pastor or elder and the woman who's teaching the women of his church or teaching a women's Bible study. Um, For example, I teach a monthly uh, women's Bible. It's not really a women's Bible study. It's, it's a topical, uh, it's a topical teaching every month. It's, it's different every month. So it's sort of self-contained. We're not going through a a book of the Bible because you can't do that just meeting once a month. But anyway, um, you know, my pastor knows me and he trusts me. I do submit my, I speak from, from a manuscript when I speak. And so I do submit that to him every single month. And uh, he reads over it. If he has any questions, he asks me if uh, he has any suggestions. He tells me it's been very helpful. But um, that verse just keeps coming back to my mind. The heart of her husband trusts in her. Well, in this case, it's the heart of her pastor trusts in her. I wouldn't be in that position if my pastor didn't trust me to teach sound doctrine under the auspices of his pastoral authority and what he is teaching the church. My job in that situation is really to reinforce and and bring practical application to what he is teaching for the women of our church. At least that's how I see it. Um, So, you know, that would be an area where I would probably not completely agree with, with the things that, that Dale is saying here. Um, you know, another thing that I would have a question about is, um, well, you know, we've been we've been talking about this a good deal uh, online, and and um, we've also talked about it on previous podcast episodes. That you know, you can't really, if you're going to teach the things in Titus two, three through five, loving your your children and your husband, submitting to your husband, you have to teach what the Bible says about those things. Or all your teaching is your opinion on on how she should love her husband, how she should love her children, how she should submit to her husband. Um, so that's you know, and we've we've talked about that in previous episodes, and we're going to have the the um, links to those episodes in the show notes for our listeners. Um, but you there you have to teach some degree of theology to be able to teach those things. Um, and another thing is that the the version of biblical womanhood that says you can only teach um, child rearing and homemaking and submitting to your husband, where does that leave single childless women? Right. You know, I, and I think that if that is all your women's ministry and your women's teaching focuses on, you're going to end up creating a divide between the married women in your church and the women who don't have children and single women. So I think that's um, that would be, you know, something that would have to be overcome if you subscribe to Dale's uh, way of thinking. Um, 
and and then there's another thing too as well. They always focus when they look at those things to teach in Titus two, three through five. The focus is always on marriage and childbearing and homemaking. But what about the other things in that passage? It also says to teach her to be self-controlled, pure, and kind. And so again, how do you teach those things without teaching the Bible? You have to teach what the Bible says on those things. Um, so again, there's there are just a lot of things to think about in in you know our view and in Dale's view and other people who subscribe to this um, this way of thinking to make sure that uh, things run smoothly, that there's no division and that, you know, that women really are being taught the truth of God's word there. You you and I probably know better than anybody else. How many false teachers are out there, how much junk there is in women's Bible study materials and stuff like that. I do think that some of the things that Dale is saying could help with those things. I just think we end up seeing things a little bit differently in the end about how things should run. Yeah, good idea, though, to listen to both of them. If Ladies, if you're interested, we're, of course, going to have those um, in the show notes. We'll have, our show notes are so heavy laden with links, ladies, that yes. uh, you just need to go. You need to head over there and read. We'll have to categorize them and index them alphabetically, I think. So, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the next news headline. Uh, I was going to say now for something lighter, but it's actually kind of darker. Um, there was this little event in Boston earlier this month called Satan. Con. Yes, that's right. A conference for Satanists who, uh, by the way, say they don't believe in Satan, but they've named their conference and their organization after him. Okay, it was called by them the largest gathering in history, and that's probably true by the numbers. The Satanic Temple is the organizer of this event with around now up to 750,000 members across the nation and world. Now, their fundraiser this year, uh, they've been doing this for 10 years now, was to raise money for abortion clinics, for keeping them open. The event featured multiple transgender keynote speakers discussing uh, titles like Reclaiming the Trans Body and Satanism and Self-Pleasure. Those are a couple of the titles. I want to play just a little clip here of attendees who were cheering during the opening ceremony as a woman tore up a Bible and a thin blue line uh, flag, a police flag, and that's what that represents, uh, which they call symbols of oppression and symbols that call cause great harm. So let's take a listen. And we stand here today in defiance of their siege and destroy their symbols of oppression. So what we were doing is trying to destroy the symbols of the things that cause harm, that oppress us, um, whether that is uh, people's theocratic views, um, trying to instill theocratic rule in a, in a supposed secular society, uh, whether that is the Supreme Court utilizing their powers to um, decimate our rights, give power to those who are further taking our rights away from us. Um, the symbol of the flag was meant to represent the communities that um, the, the people in authoritative positions that use that to cause harm to those who need the most protection. 
So what you heard was uh, a lot of yelping and yowling and howling and people cheering as pages of the Bible are being torn up and thrown into the air. And uh, of course, these are the things that are uh, oppressive to them and cause great harm. They also held an unbaptism ceremony where people could get their baptisms reversed. Uh, yeah, I won't even comment on whether that's even possible. Uh, anywho, I found one thing, Michelle, about the Satanic Temple group. Very interesting. And, you know, you're probably wondering, well, why would you, why, why would you focus on a Satanic gathering? Uh, and, and actually, there's a bigger issue, I think. You know, uh, of course, Jesus won the victory over this. And, you know, demons are going to deem and, and pagans are going to peg, of course. <laughs> Um, but, uh, the interesting thing that I found was kind of a, a bigger thing, and that is their tenets or statements of belief that they have, Michelle. Here's what they stand for. Now, see if this sounds familiar. Are you ready? Here's what they stand I'm for. I'm ready. Okay. Social justice, abortion rights, sexual self-pleasure, and moving forward initiatives to normalize trans non-gender ideology. Now, what other entities hold these same core values? What just off the top of your head? Uh, <laughs> liberals, um, yes. lost people. Um, yeah, I would say uh, <laughs> the government does, but also yeah. the public schools, the government-run schools, oh, hold yeah. to these same values, and these are the things that they're pushing in in schools. Especially the you know lately, we're seeing a lot more of the trans non-gender ideology being taught. And by the way, this is the same group that formed the official after-school Satan Club. Uh, it's a it's a real thing. It's an after-school program that promotes self-directed education by supporting the intellectual and creative interests of students. They call it critical thinking, by the way. And uh, anytime you see the words critical thinking, um, you know, you can think beyond critical race theory, but critical thinking is actually owned by atheist groups, and they try to get in, and, and it's anything but thinking critically. It's it's not thinking critically at all. It's pushing an agenda to get rid of all religion. So, Anyway, uh, that was the headline that I found interesting and just, just kind of how we're seeing some of these same satanic things and demonic things happening in our public schools. So any thoughts on, on that news headline, Michelle? Oh, my goodness. Can we just offer a plea? If your kids are still in public school, get them out of public school. We, If you don't know how, you're scared to do it, we did an episode on homeschooling and how to get started. We'll put that in the show notes, too, is if I remember to do it. But, you know, you may say, oh, you know, I live in a small rural town and this kind of thing isn't happening in my school. Oh, yes. Are you is. sure about that? I yeah. live in a small rural town, 3000 people. And yeah, these things are, these things do happen very subtly sometimes and sometimes very over the top. But, you know, look for any school board uh, discussion on these things. And it, it's shocking. Yeah, I mean, we a lot of the news stories I see where people are protesting in stuff that's going on in the schools and they're in the Bible Belt, just like I am. They're in small towns. So this if this stuff hasn't come to your public school, it's it's on its way. So get your kids out of public school, put them in a Christian school or homeschool them, do whatever you got to do, but get them out of public school. Um, another thing that uh, 
that uh, occurred to me is I've, I've heard of this kind of th- this uh, when people are deconstructing their faith or whatever, I've heard of this uh, reversing your baptism or whatever. And what I've seen them doing is pulling out hair dryers and blowing people to death with hair dryers. Oh, seriously? You know, cause we, yeah, because, you know, when you get when you get baptized, you go down into the water and you're all wet. And so oh. I guess they think that blowing you with a hair dryer will reverse your baptism. Is that what they were doing? No, in this one, they were painting upside down crosses on foreheads, upside down. So I guess that reverses whatever cross was right side oh, up. Brother. Yeah, I think think they might have it confused with uh, uh, Ash Wednesday or something, but <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Maybe yeah. that's I, and I shouldn't laugh because young people are falling for this. Uh, you yeah. did have to be eighteen to attend this this conference. You couldn't even go with your parents. So um, yeah, Satan Con, you well, had to be eighteen. Anyway. But still, a lot of young people there. Yeah, I'm sure there were. And you know, the the only other thought I had was that it's really time for some introspection for Planned Parenthood. You know. When Satanists are endorsing your practices, um, does that not give you pause? I mean, they're not endorsing charities and people who do good things and, you know, nice people and organizations and philanthropists and things like this. They're endorsing all these horrible things and abortion. So (laughs) maybe give that some thought, Planned Parenthood, and maybe, you know, stop doing what you're doing by murdering babies and, and really being basically the same as the Satanists yourself, because you, you're both of your father, the devil. So why don't you just stop it and close your doors and quit murdering babies? <laughs> that, if if only so it were better. that simple. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, here's our next story. The annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention is coming up June 13th through 14th. Let's take a listen. This coming June, messengers from across the country will once again join one another right here in New Orleans to celebrate how God is using us to carry out the Great Commission. New Orleans is a truly unique city and boasts one of the greatest culinary experiences of any city in the country. It's a city rich in history, tradition, and Great Commission partnerships. And we want you to join us in New Orleans, Louisiana, June 11th to 14th for the 2023 Annual Meeting and Pastors Conference. And let's celebrate how God is working in and through churches around the country and the world to accomplish the Great Commission. All right, this is going to be a historic watershed moment for the Southern Baptist Convention. The spotlight issue is going to be Rick Warren's challenge of the executive committee's decision to disfellowship or cut ties with Saddleback, which is the quote unquote church. He quote unquote pastored. (laughs) I can't really call it a church. I can't really call him a pastor, but it's the church that he pastored for over 40 years because uh, Rick and the reason they're um, disfellowshipping or that they did disfellowship Saddleback is because Rick decided to appoint a husband and wife as co-pastors to replace him once he retired. And the SBC statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message does not allow churches with female pastors to join or remain in fellowship with the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, if Rick can successfully convince the messengers, the, the attendees who vote, if he can successfully convince them to vote to overturn the decision and Judging from the standing ovation they gave him after his six-minute out-of-order ode to himself last year, that's very likely. Um, The four other churches that were disfellowshipped at the same time that Saddleback was uh, disfellowshipped, they can push to have their decisions overturned as well. And assuming they're successful, you know, think about it. How much time and energy do you think that the Credentials Committee is going to put into any future complaints about other churches with women pastors? None. That's how much. 
So not long after that, they will, I assume, amend the the Baptist faith and message and remove the part about women being pastors. And that's how the approval of women pastors is going to end up codified into SBC policy. I think the first time I said that the SBC would affirm women pastors within five years, I think the first time I said that was last year. So barring a certified miracle, I still believe that. So that's going to be the major issue. In addition to that, I'm sure the abuse issue issue will come up again, and that's that's very involved as well. Um, Our friend Mike Stone, who was up for election for president of the SBC in 2019, he has graciously volunteered for nomination again, and he needs all the support that he can get. Yeah. So bottom line, if your church is still in the SBC, we need as many of you as possible to talk to your pastors about becoming a messenger. Get to New Orleans in June. Make sure you're educated on all the issues and vote biblically. If you're not sure where to get trustworthy information on the issues from a biblical perspective, we've put a recent blog article of mine in the show notes that gives you a bunch of links. But let me just mention just a few. First of all, follow Founders Ministries, the Conservative Baptist Network, Tom Askell and Tom Buck on Twitter. That's Founders Ministries, the Conservative Baptist Network, Tom Askell and Tom Buck. And there are others as well in in the article in the show notes. Now, I know some of y'all don't like Twitter, but I would recommend that you bite the bullet and get on there for the next several weeks to follow these folks um, if you want to stay informed. Because a lot of these things that that are going on in the SBC, you're not going to see them on Facebook or Instagram or just by subscribing to the founder's email list or whatever. You're only going to see it for whatever reason. You're only going to see it transpiring on Twitter. That's just how it is. So do that. And then finally, I'm going to the annual meeting again this year, Lord willing, and I want to meet you. Last year during the convention, I held several pop-up meet and greets like, you know, I'll be out by the fountain from two to three o'clock, stop by and say hello, that kind of thing. And those were really one of the major highlights of the convention for me. They were just a lot of fun. And I got to meet so many of y'all and and you were so sweet. And I, I just really enjoyed it. So that's uh, that's our story on the SBC. Amy, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I'm just going to be in prayer for y'all, and I, I say y'all with the greatest respect because <laughs> I I know that down there in New Orleans it's going to be it's going to be um, quite interesting. Uh, I yes. know, I, and for for those of you who uh, joined us uh, after probably about two years ago, uh, our our church actually did leave the uh, Southern yeah. Baptist Convention, and so you know the uh, the elders talked about this. They laid out all the reasons why, and then we voted unanimously to um, you know to dis disjoin. I guess. <laughs> unbaptized? No, I, I don't know what that is. But, <laughs> but, but we decided to, uh, to leave. Yeah, we unhitched. We unhitched. And um, and it, it was a good decision, and, and it's okay. But yes, I, I know that uh, if, if that had gone on much longer, I'm quite certain that this year would have been the year, uh, if not any other year, that that would have happened anyway. Uh, it, and it wasn't just the uh, male and female husband and wife team that were appointed, but he also ordained three other women who uh, right. never Knelt on stage and and became pastorixes uh, at Saddleback. So that was right. uh, it was really disturbing, and and we'll we'll put the links in there if you'd like to learn more about that. But uh, but yeah, we're we're starting to see more and more women becoming ordained pastors in leading churches where the Bible clearly says uh, that is not to be. So right, my thought on that. 
All right. Well, let's go on to our next story. And I'm just going to read it. Leroy Carhart. That's one of the very few abortionists in the U.S. who committed elective abortions very late in pregnancy has died. Okay, that's the headline. But what most people don't know about this man is that he was one of the most prolific serial killers of our time. For decades, his tiny victims could not defend themselves as he brutally ripped them apart. In fact, he continued slaughtering victims right up until the final months before he died at the ripe old age of 81. That was just a month ago. Carhartt is, or by the way, he was, one of four medical butchers in the U.S. who performed late-term abortions after 26 weeks. He was also responsible for the deaths of at least two women, two patients of his, uh, Kristen Gilbert and Jennifer Morbelli, and is said to have injured many more women who hemorrhaged uh, profusely during or after their abortion procedures. Now, in 2013, Carhartt was featured in a pro-life documentary. You may have seen it. It was titled Inhuman, where he talked about late-term abortions that he was performing. And uh, this was a, a documentary. Some folks went undercover and interviewed him, and they, they posed as women who were thinking of uh, aborting their babies. And in one conversation with a woman who was thinking about having uh, or said she was thinking about having her baby terminated, uh, he said a preborn baby killed in an abortion was like putting meat in a crock pot. Oy. In another exchange, he actually joked about his abortion toolkit. Take a listen to this. So you don't see a lot of women like me? Well, I saw four this week. Okay. So. At 26 weeks? Yeah. Wow. All right. So I'm not unusual. No, not at okay. all. And the baby... Will come through, it'll compress down and come through that because it's not alive. And so when you say compress down? It just, it gets soft, like mushy. Oh. So you, pu you push it through. So what makes the baby mushy? <laughs> the fact that it's not alive for two or three oh. days. So I'll have a dead baby in me? For three days, yeah. Will it start to decay or something? No. Oh, okay. well, I, I, no, it's like putting meat in a crock pot. Okay, it doesn't get it doesn't get broke, but it gets gets softer. It doesn't get infected or. Okay, you know. so the dead baby in me is like it's, meat it's, in a crock pot. Pretty much, yeah, kind of much. All right, all right. And, and what was it that killed it? The, the injection. That the we do the first into one. It, the second one. Oh, the second one. No, I, I mean I've done some when the women can't have that shot yeah. if they're alive. I mean, it just. You know, I'm sure the baby feels a needle stick if the baby feels anything, oh. and I truly don't believe that it does at 26 oh. weeks. For some I've reason, never had I'm not able to deliver. Well, you'll be able to get it out Take it out in, in pieces. pieces. But, that, but that, at 26 weeks, is very, very rare. And what do you use to break it up? Just well, a whole bunch of it. <laughs> Got a toolkit. Pickaxe, drill, but you know. <laughs> I see. Okay. So, no, I mean, there's all it's just instruments that have been developed. So if that did happen, you'd make sure I didn't have like a hand left in there or something. Yes, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I can't promise. It's like a Hollywood that. movie I waiting. Would, yeah, I, I mean, but I would certainly tell you that we will do everything in our best to make sure there's nothing left behind. Okay, so it's just like a normal delivery. Except the baby's not alive. Okay, so the baby's dead. And what makes it safer is the fact that I only have the, you to worry about. So whatever I have to do oh. to the baby to keep you healthy, I can do. I have better luck standing in front of a train and getting hit and surviving than, than going 100 miles an hour than the baby.
That was absolutely grotesque, absolutely grotesque, just describing that, uh, the baby's death. Um, one more, one more, uh, quote from this monster. And by the way, Michelle, there, there's really no telling how many murders Carhartt was responsible for, but he actually claimed, uh, in, in another quote that he was pro-life. Now, mm-hmm. this is from a 2010 interview with NPR, and I'm just going to read his quote. He said, quote, in a perfect world, I believe there could be a reason for no abortions, he said. But unfortunately, we do not live in a perfect world. And unfortunately, these same people that protest abortions are also against all the things that would help reduce frequency of abortions, including early education about sex, early education about the use of birth control, availability of birth control, availability of school education about intercourse and about sex, end quote. Michelle, the way sex education is all government-run schools seem to ever talk about, and nothing changes. It's really not their end goal to end abortions anyway. It's it's not that at all, is it? No, it really isn't. I mean, this. Ugh. all I can think of is that abolition laws would have stopped this guy. He would have been arrested. He would have been tried for multiple, like you said, serial murders, and he would have been put in jail or executed. And so if you've never considered uh, abolition versus pro-life, again, this is something else we've done a, an episode on. So we'll, we'll put that in the show notes for you as well. Our show notes are going to be a mile long, but we've got lots of good materials for you on that. Um this is just, this is disgusting and grotesque and horrifying. Um, but, you know, as, as bad as this guy was, if he had repented of his sin and trusted Christ, God would have saved him just like he saved all of us, just like he saved you, just like he saved me. And so let this story just drive you to the gospel. Let it, you know, make you thankful for how Christ saved you and for what a sinner you were. Um, you know, we, we tend to look at, at people like, like this doctor and, and think, oh, he's, he's a monster. And he was, but that doesn't mean you and I were any lesser of a sinner. You know, let's, let's make sure that we're not the, um, in the story of the Pharisee and the publican looking down at the publican and saying, oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this man. I, I do this, this, and this, that's good. No, our, our good deeds have nothing to do with saving us. And we needed salvation just as much as this, this horrible, horrible man needed salvation. So be sure that you are thankful for your salvation and be sure that, you know, that this drives you to share the gospel with other people because you have friends and family and other people in your life and around you that need to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel just as much as he did. Amen, Michelle. That is that is so true. And if he can save a sinner like uh, me, he can save anyone. So, um, yeah, That's right. <laughs> me too. Good Absolutely. Lesson. All right. Well, here is my last story for the night, and I saw this on Twitter. So we don't have a an audio clip for this one, but I, I found it thought provoking. Uh, someone that I don't know posted a graph, uh, apparently taken from a New York Times article from 2018, and the title of this this graph was "Demographics of Long Term Antidepressants," and the caption above the graph said, "Older white women account for 58 percent of adults who have used antidepressants um, for at least five years." 
So over half of all adults who use antidepressants long-term are older white women, according to this, uh, this graph. And so here's the breakdown. Minority men age 45 and up, it looks like probably less than half a million are using antidepressants. Uh, minority women age 45 and up, about 125, or excuse me, 1.25 million. Uh, white men age 45 and up, about 3 million. And then white women age 45 and up looks like we're jumping from 3 million with white men to about 9 million with white women age 45 and up. Now, if you know anything about statistics, you know there are a lot of variables to adjust for in a graph like this, in a study like this. And there are always questions about whether those variables have been properly accounted for. So let's just take a more generalized point from this graph. A lot of older women are experiencing depression and taking medication for it. Amy, do you have any idea about why so many women our age are, are depressed? Well, no, I don't. Because, well, I, I should say that there are things going on with, you know, everything from chemicals to our, our food supply to, um, you know, screen time and our brains and all sorts of things. I, I do think that there is a spiritual darkness that is increasing in our world and that uh, many women uh, succumb to that. Women of our age are also seeing their world changing. You know, it's not like what yeah. we thought it was going to be when we were kids. So expectations change. Um, but then you talk about a real mental illness, like a chemical brain imbalance, which is real. And, and you uh, you have people who are, say, uh, bipolar, who struggle with these things and, and a deep-seated pain that they cannot explain, but is always there to the point where they just want to take their lives to escape it. And, and that is tragic. Uh, mm-hmm. So there, there are so many variables, like you said, Michelle, that um, that, that it's hard for even uh, the, the professionals to get a hold of, let alone anybody who's just trying to guess. But I do know that this is a lot of times spiritual versus anything else. And so, and I'm not poo-pooing mental depression because it is a real thing, but but I will say that sometimes we do it to ourselves. I, I really think that, you know, especially for the milder cases of it. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think a lot of our listeners may know that uh, my bachelor's degree is in psychology and I did my master's work in marriage and family counseling. So I do have a bit of experience with this. And by the way, when I say that, I am not recommending that you get a degree in psychology or secular counseling because it's, it's not it's not godly. It's not based on scripture, but it did give me some good experience in this kind of thing. And in my, my experience, there's, there's like you were saying, there are different kinds of causes of depression. There's true organic physiological causes of depression, which in my experience is, is pretty rare. And then there's situational depression. You're depressed because you're grieving or because there's been a huge change in your life or, or something like that. And in my experience, about 90% of the things, especially with depression, that people go to therapy for are situational due to spiritual issues, especially if you're lost, because you don't have the hope of Christ and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So women our age are dealing with a lot of major life changes, a lot of especially lost people. When the children grow up and leave the house, you know, there a lot of people get divorced around that time because their lives revolved around the children and they wake up with their spouse and, and he's a stranger now. 
Um, and then you, like I said, you have the children growing up and leaving the home. And, uh, you know, something that's kind of hit me as my children are, are growing up and leaving the home because I, you know, have been a stay at home mom, a homeschooling mom for so many years that my identity was really wrapped up in that. I'm not saying that uh, to the exclusion of my relationship with my husband or anything like that, because we've always been a very close family, but my role is changing. And so that's a major life change for me. I, I've been, uh, thinking about the fact and, and telling people that, you know, when you have a baby, they tell you how much your life is going to change when you start having babies. But when your babies grow up and leave the home, nobody ever tells you what a huge change that's going to be. And it is a big change. It's a joyful that's change. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> it's a joyful change because they're out on their own and everything, but it's still a big change. And so you have, you know, the some people are getting divorced. Some people's uh, children are leaving the home. Uh, a lot of women who work outside the home are retiring around this time. And so that's, you know, maybe their identity is wrapped up in that. And there are just these huge major changes going on. And like I said, if especially if you're lost, you do not have the hope of Christ and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is not just a gospel of salvation and eternity in heaven. It's a gospel of peace and hope right now. And that's something that people desperately need. And when you don't have that, of course, you're going to be depressed because things look bleak, you know, things look bad and you're feeling bad because all these things are going on. Um, so, you know, if you, if you know someone who, you know, an older woman, particularly if she's feeling depressed because of all these various life changes that are going on and, and she's not a Christian, share the gospel with her. She needs the hope that Christ can bring and the peace that he can give to her heart. Um, if you are experiencing depression, I would highly recommend that you try to see a biblical counselor first or maybe get some counseling from your pastor and deal with the spiritual side of things first. Make sure that what you're dealing with, um, you know, if it is a spiritual issue, you get that all worked out, especially before you just start taking medication. Um, make sure that you actually physically need those antidepressants before you before you start taking them. And then um, just the last thing that I wanted to add in in discussions about depression, I know, you know, a lot of people you, you bring this up with Christians and a lot of Christians who have uh, experienced depression. I've I've experienced it to a mild degree myself, but a, a lot of Christians will bring up the fact that that Spurgeon struggled with with depression. And then in the Psalms that we, we see David's many cries of grief, which today might be diagnosed as depression. And you know what neither of them had? Neither of them had antidepressants, but they both had Christ as their ever present comforter and strength. And God brought them through and they walked with God. They were comforted by him. They came to know him, depend on him and draw close to him in a way that they would have missed if they would have depended on medication instead. I'm not saying you should never, ever, ever take medication for depression. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying don't be so quick to jump to medication. Deal with your spiritual issues first. Listen to what Romans 5, 3 through 5 says. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance 
And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Christ can create endurance and hope and and grow you in character through the experience of suffering if you are walking with him and depending on him. And so what I'm saying is not, again, not that no one should ever take any sort of medication, but see if, if you can walk with the Lord through this and depend on him through this and, uh, and deal with any spiritual issues that you might need to deal with that might be causing the depression instead of some sort of organic issue. Yeah. And Michelle, I would just say too that um, you have to be very careful with medications these days. Nobody knows what the right combination is for many of the uh, mental illnesses that, that are diagnosed, that are clinical. And, uh, and it's an experiment sometimes and, and women are, uh, you know, taking a certain combination of drugs to try and see if it works, but you won't know for four to six weeks until they actually kick in. And it is, um, it's heartbreaking to watch a loved one um, experiment with drugs and then, you know, the, these medications and then find out that the, uh, the solution doesn't work and we have to try right. something else or you run out of solutions right. and then what? And like you said, the only hope we truly have right. is in Christ. Right. So right. Um, uh, right. very encouraging. Find those ladies in your mm-hmm. church who are uh, encouragers, who have that beautiful gift of encouragement and um, uh, just just really relish in the fact that we are his and that he knows us and that he's going through all of these things with us. So we're not left alone. Right. And let me just add real quickly to don't hear me saying all these things about medication and go immediately into your bathroom. If you're on antidepressants and grab your antidepressants and throw them away and stop taking them cold Turkey, do not do that. That is dangerous. You, if you think that you might want to start waning off of those medications, you need to talk to your doctor about the safe way to do that. So please don't, we're not offering medical advice here. Talk to your doctor and but be in prayer about how, uh, you know, the Lord might lead you through this situation. Well, let's wrap up. I've got a final story to share with you tonight, and I don't have a soundbite for this next story. Just some thoughts to consider. As we record this, it is the first week of May 2023. And although we don't like to put a shelf life on our episodes with news that will just get stale after the events take place, we recognize that some things like this next topic happen year after year after year. And I'm talking about, in this case, the National Day of Prayer. It happens every year in May. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, this uh, ecumenical event has been organized since 1952. I believe it was Harry Truman that put that uh, order into place. It was a, a time really when millions of people of all religions are to stop what they're doing and pray in unity with one another to whichever God they worship for the well-being of America. Now, I've got some articles from uh, over at the, my Berean Research blog, as well as others about this event, uh, and uh, how what started off as a seemingly great idea to have a day where the nation prays uh, has been hijacked by folks whose theology has gone a bit sideways. Now, you've heard us talk before about the New Apostolic Reformation, or NAR. Uh, the NAR is a movement of modern-day apostles or prophets, and or it's and, uh, not that there are any, 
but these folks have a stated goal of building up an end times army to build the kingdom of God here on earth. Now, here's a short list of how they are attempting to do this. You may This may be familiar to you. First, they try to do this by trying to take dominion of demons and the demonic realm. They do it by trying to force a nationwide revival, by holding big tent events at huge venues and stadiums, and by trying to reclaim America or public schools or the media or entertainment or the government, arts, family, religion, etc., etc., all for Jesus. Now, in the years past, we've seen the National Day of Prayer Task Force team up with leaders from Hillsong, along with some famous celebrities passing along mantles of leadership. And by the way, mantles are a term only used by the NAR. Uh, leaders like Ronnie Floyd, Anne Graham Lotz, Christine Kane, and leaders from a group called Generals International. That's an influential NAR organization led by the controversial prophet uh, Cindy Jacobs, along with NAR leaders Dutch Sheets and the prophet Lou Engel. Uh, all of them are false prophets, by the way, and we are going to share some links, including uh, one great article that you might be interested in from Holly Pivik. Uh, she's a great writer. We recommend her, and uh, you can check our show notes for that. Well, this year featured leaders like NAR partner Francis Chan and a few female pastrixes, more than a few female pastrixes. So if your church plans on participating next year in 2024, well, you might want to research and bring your concerns to your leadership. Again, praying for our leaders is a very good thing, but partnering partnering with false teachers and dominionists is not a good thing. Now, folks who, uh, you know, just the, the garden variety Christian who unwittingly put America first before God Almighty, or maybe who use their Christian faith or sense of moralism as a sort of weapon against the dark forces of evil we see increasing in our world, might actually be in danger of their own theology going sideways. So just want to issue a little bit warning about that for you and me. Now, this is a matter of just having the right perspective, that we are chosen for eternity with Christ Jesus in the kingdom that he is building in heaven. And yes, we are in that kingdom right now if we are born-again believers. Can we bring the kingdom to earth? Well, Jesus certainly will in the future, but can we? Only if we do what we're supposed to do and share the hope of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, to the ends of the earth. Each new regenerated heart that responds to the good news is another soul in the kingdom. Now, not by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're just the seed planters and the waterers. He brings the harvest. And I often say that folks who are trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit are so busy trying to reclaim America that they forget they're supposed to proclaim Christ. And on that note, I'm just going to mention the big uh, Christian controversy. It's sort of my little segue here. It's not, it's kind of rough and bumpy, so hold on. Uh, (laughs) But there was a big Christian controversy earlier this month. It's still going on. It's an argument that we've seen play out online over something called Christian nationalism. Uh, In other words, how Christians view their nation. What ideas does the phrase Christian nationalism bring out in you? Now, hang on before you tune out. I I don't want you to just say, oh, I've heard this argument. I'm sick of it. Well, I promise I'm not going to rehash the arguments. I I just promise I'm not going to do that. No one wants that. But I do want to spend just a moment on this because the brothers and sisters in Christ who have been part of the discussion and who, by the way, I want to make this very clear, they're no way a part of the NAR or any other false group. Uh, These are solid brothers and sisters have in recent weeks attempted to define Christian nationalism, even though there really isn't 
a great definition everyone can agree on, and then they would contend either for or against. And again, these are godly people who are asking the questions and looking at trends in the church, people you and I would respect as solid Christians, not the ones whose theology is in question. Now, the idea that America was founded by many Christians on godly principles isn't wrong, but do we have a Christian nation right now? And how should Christians view our role or our response to the degradation and downfall of our you know, morality that we're seeing all around us, especially when it comes to our children and their children, uh, you know, those future generations, and, and we're just seeing this darkness. So is Christian nationalism even in the Bible? Well, it would take days of us to really share all the nuances of Christian nationalism, and I promised I wouldn't do that, uh, but I just am going to suggest several resources for you if you want to learn about these. I'm just going to pick some of the top three or four, because what you don't want to do is learn from people who are not Christians. The world defines Christian nationalists as white racists, misogynists, tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists, and uh, generally evil people. That's how they decide, you know, who we are. And, uh, you know, we're trying to obliterate freedom, to choose abortion, and so on and so forth. That's what the world thinks of us. We're all lumped together in one big stew. So with that said, here are some top links if you want to learn more about Christian nationalism. I'm, I'm going to just put these right in our show notes. There is a, a statement on Christian nationalism by a group of folks who uh, put together kind of a, a, a white paper, if you will, on this. And then on the other side of things, there is a video by G3 on a podcast episode with Josh Bice, Virgil Walker, and Scott Aniel, who address their concerns with Christian nationalism and provide a positive vision for Christian cultural engagement. And then Scott also wrote uh, an article called Christian Faithfulness, the Biblical Alternative to Christian Nationalism. That's a great article. And then finally, fourth, a podcast called The Sword and the Trowel, where Tom Askell, and he's been on our program before, and Graham Gundon talk about their issues with Christian nationalism. And uh, that's a founders.org podcast. So we'll, we'll just say, check these all out. Um, you're going to find that they don't agree with each other. And uh, But you're, what you do want to do is take it to God's word and ask for wisdom in discerning all of these things. Um, my personal take, and you do not have to agree with me, <laughs> many of you won't, um, don't withdraw or hide from these issues. You know, Don't say it'll all pan out, but instead just apply godly wisdom to every area of your life, including this one, including these big issues. Go ahead and vote faithfully. And yes, go ahead and be patriotic. Go ahead and share Christ. Speak up and stand up for truth and against sin. Uh, and you guys know I'm anti-abortion and anti-woke all day long. Lead a quiet life, work hard, raise your children to know and love God, and above all, love one another, and don't divide with your brothers and sisters over this or any hot topic issue. Michelle, I thought that was a good one to end on. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what to say the, about that. I think that you haven't already said. You said all my thoughts, like you read my mind or something. So I think we would surprise, surprise, be in complete agreement again. <laughs> uh, let me just say for the National Day of Prayer, this business with the false teachers, and you are so right. I mean, it has really gone downhill, but the business with the false teachers headlining National Day of Prayer events is nothing new. Um, I, I used to be the associational prayer coordinator for my local uh, Southern Baptist Convention Association, which is, it's just sort of like a, a regional network of, of 
SBC churches. And one of my responsibilities was to uh, set up prayer meetings and things like that. And I, I set up an association wide national day of prayer event one year. I think it was, gosh, it has to have been at least 10 years ago. And, and this was becoming an issue even then with the false teachers and, and whatnot. So, you know, if you or your church like the idea of National Day of Prayer, by all means, have a, have a prayer meeting at your church or get together with, with friends and, and pray. Maybe even, you know, make it fun. Go out for ice cream afterwards or something like that. Have some good fellowship. But just don't pipe in any of this, you know, quote unquote, e official National Day of Prayer videos or use any of their materials and, and whatnot. Just get together as brothers and sisters in Christ and pray. You, you can't go wrong that way. <laughs> and, and then as far as Christian nationalism goes, you know, like you said, I am so ready for this argument to be over. I mean, every day I open up Twitter and there's some new argument going on involving, you know, various different people. And I just hate seeing all that arguing going on. <clears throat> and this debate really pretty much boils down to eschatology. It's mostly, yeah, it's mostly post-millennials on the Christian nationalism side and everybody else on the non-Christian nationalism side, although there is a little bit of crossover. Um, and I agree with a lot of the things that people on both sides are saying. And so I'm taking the side of staying out of it completely and not getting involved in the arguing uh, aspect of it. Uh, but, you know, in the end, it's really an unresolvable debate. You know why? Because we can't see into the future. We don't know what God is going to do because he hasn't specifically told us in his word exactly precisely what's going to happen in what order and when. This is why we don't fight to the ever-loving death over and divide over eschatology because we don't know what's going to happen. We're arguing over our opinions about what we think might happen. And that is pointless and distracting and a waste of time. And God has called us not to do that. Listen to what 2 Timothy 2.23 says. It says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. You know what the word ignorant means? It, it doesn't mean you're stupid. It means you don't know something. Like, I am ignorant of how to build an airplane. Okay, I just don't know how to do that. It doesn't mean I'm a stupid person. I just don't know how to do that. We don't know what sort of direction this nation is headed in tomorrow or next week or 10 years from now. And this ignorant controversy is breeding quarrels, just like that verse says. So what do we do? Just like Amy said, we just get up every day and walk faithfully with Christ. If that means that you have the opportunity to run for a political office so you can make godly laws and shine the light of Christ in the arena of politics, you do that. If that means you stay at home and pour the gospel into your children and maybe disciple younger women at your church, you do that. Get up every day and be faithful and stop worrying about the future and how all this stuff is going to shake out and happen. It's going to happen the way that God determines it's going to happen. And listen, None of us are going to get extra points for figuring it out ahead of time. OK, it's fun to think about. It's interesting, you know, an interesting little brain project there. But at the end of the day, that's all it is, is speculation, maybe biblically informed speculation. Sure. But we don't know. So get up every day and be faithful. Amen, sister. 
On that note, that is going to wrap things up for another episode of The Pew on A Word Fitly Spoken. What did you think, listeners? Well, you can sound off on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages, or leave us a five-star review if you wouldn't mind, or an encouraging comment on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you listen to A Word Fitly Spoken. And don't forget to check out all of our resources at awordfitlyspoken.life. And until next time, keep your focus on the good news of Jesus and walk worthy.